I'm Heidi Byrick. I am the co-founder of the new Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where I'm in charge of uh, strategic thinking. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. Did baby Heidi always want to get into the work of combating extremism? Like, were you just born wanting to do this? Well, it's for, for me, it was a combination of a fluke and... I think a long-standing fascination with really bad people. So mm-hmm. I, um, you know, when I was, uh, I studied, like I took a terrorism class my first year in college. I was just fascinated with the idea of terrorism at the time that tended to be like Bosque terrorists in Spain mm-hmm. and, uh, Puerto Rican terrorists and, and Quebecois in, in Canada. And I studied a lot on military regimes in Latin America how they functioned, what allowed them to function, how they got away with, you know, terrible things. Eventually ended up kind of an expert, maybe small e, in the Franco regime and Spanish history. Hmm. So I was always interested in like fascism, extremism, violent government formations, and so on. Why I'm interested in that, I'm not exactly sure. I, I can't think of anything really in my past. I grew up in kind of, you know, relatively affluent suburban Palm Springs, California, right? Which is not really the kind of place that... Oh, that'll do it. Ex- that, that'll, yeah. that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I don't know what it was, but I was always fascinated by it. And um, But the job when I came to the Southern Poverty Law Center, that was most certainly a fluke. I had just finished um, my PhD at Purdue University And my husband and I were looking for places where we could both teach at the same place, which is hard to do, right, in academia. Mm. And he got a job offer for Auburn. And I remembered, because I, when I was in high school in Vista, California, I was really close to where Tom Metzger of White Aryan Resistance was, right? This is way back a million years ago in the 1980s. Mm. And I knew a lot about the group, and I knew about how the Southern Poverty Law Center had sued them, right? Sued them out of existence with the help, I believe, of the Anti-Defamation League. And so um, I thought, well, Auburn's in Alabama, so is the Southern Poverty Law Center. I should see if there's something I could do there for like a year as we sort this academia thing out. (laughs) And there was an internship, and I applied for it, and they hired me. It was like an internship for kids right out of college, but I took it. And within two months of getting there, this was in September of 1999, I went on my first undercover gig. I went to a Council of Conservative Citizens meeting that was held at a Ramada Inn in Huntsville, Alabama. And David Duke was there, and members of the National Alliance were there, and all the bad guys at that time. It was almost like they had a super secret meeting, even though it was held at the Ramada, where everybody (laughs) showed up, right? And and what happened was I, I then ended up spending, you know, the next four or five years sort of semi undercover in um, white supremacist hate groups. And I was hooked. Right. I just came to view this as a, a terrifying movement that does great damage, represents the worst of American history 
And if I was going to have the luck of being able to do some work that would curb this kind of extremism, well, then, damn it, I was going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I never looked back, never, never considered going back to academia after that point. There's several people that I know, um, both at ADL and elsewhere, who you know, took a job in this field and like 20 years later, they're still doing it. There is something that you know is unique to this group of people who do that work that you can't find necessarily anywhere else. I completely agree with you. And I do think that you're right that there's a certain, I don't know if addictive is the word for it, mm. but you know, a, a special sort of passion. And once you get the expertise too, once you know the cast of characters Mm. um, and can figure out ways to try to, you know, hopefully stop them from doing their terrible things, it's just, it it becomes sort of almost an overwhelming thing. I mean, since I've been doing this work in both at the SPLC and with colleagues at places like the ADL and other places, I have never known people who are so obsessed, right, about tracking something. These are the kinds of people who are going to text you on a Sunday night at 2 a.m., when something bad happens, right? Because it just becomes, it, it overwhelms you, right? You want to do everything you can to, to stop it. And also, they're weird people, right? I mean, they're really fascinating, weird, <laughs> horrible people. Hor- don't get me wrong. Oh, oh you're but, referring to the subjects. I thought you meant referring yeah, talk- to the people who are studying no, them. I'm talking about the subjects. Maybe all of us are a little weird too, those of <laughs> us who study them so obsessively. But the cast of characters in the white supremacist movement is... Um, totally bizarre right and and so there's that as well so you mentioned you know david duke at a ramada and um you know this is this is goes back a, a few years and david duke is is sort of a prime example of somebody who always sort of recognized how his message may resonate abroad a big part of what you're looking at now right as in your role at the global project against hate and extremism is this nexus between in part, what's happening abroad in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, David Duke, like in many ways, was a forerunner when it came to hate, right? He was also one of the first people in the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, to run down to the border, right, and talk about building a border wall and all these kinds of anti-immigrant things. Hmm. I think he spent, what, a couple of years in Russia, basically on the run before he was arrested for those fraud charges. Hmm. His his book, his autobiography, was selling in, in the bookstore at the Duma. And he had figured out, you know, we're talking about now the early 2000s, that those international connections would be useful to him. Spent time in Austria. I remember at one point he was selling postcards of himself shirtless on top of the Alps, right, as a fundraising gig. But but yes, and, and he cultivated connections in Italy, I think, as well. Mm. So he realized that there were like-minded thinkers um, in other countries. I mean, William Pierce, right, the head of the neo-Nazi National Alliance, also mm. traveled, spoke at in uh, right-wing events in Germany, spoke to Golden Dawn, right, in Greece. So he he had this sense as well that there's a white brotherhood that goes beyond borders. So but how, it, how, much, how it, much do you think that actually contributed to what we're, what we're seeing now? You know, how much of what you saw with David Duke and William Pierce abroad and, and what they were doing looks like what we're seeing today? Or is today sort of gone to a whole new level because of, you know, connectivity, et cetera? It's a totally whole new level. I think what Pierce and Duke and even Jared Taylor back in the early 2000s, he, he would travel to like far right UK events and in France. I think he went to a Front National event. They were sort of 
testing the waters about how much of a white brotherhood can we build. But now that white brotherhood is built. And and you pointed out connectivity. The, the web is a central issue here, right? Mm. You didn't have the organizing possibilities that you have today, 20 years ago. It just wasn't possible. These people are in contact with each other all the time. And we now have legitimate white supremacist groups that are borderless, like the Generation Identity Movement, right? Mm. It's in multiple countries, multiple places, and inspired, of course, the shooter in, in Christchurch. We have you know, really scary accelerationist neo-Nazis like Autumn Waffen and the base and others that exist across continents and places. And we have crazy coordination, for example, of white supremacists traveling to Ukraine, neo-Nazis, right, in the Rise Above movement, mm -hmm. as foreign fighters, like what we usually associate with Islamic um, extremists. So it's, it's, it's a totally different world. Everybody's connected on the web in some way. Everybody thinks the same thing. I mean, we've watched the same tropes and memes now take over white supremacy, right? It's all about white genocide and the great replacement. And, mm -hmm. you know, these, the Jews are manipulating the immigrants to wipe us out, right? I mean, everybody's like on the same terrifying page now and all sharing their ideas that this wasn't possible 20 years ago. And I think the idea, you know, that was Stormfront's um, trope all the time, white pride worldwide is like a real thing today. Mm. It's no longer just a slogan. It's it's actually a movement. You know, in particular, you mentioned the the Great Replacement. Can can you say a little bit more about you know what that is and and you know its place as a sort of foundational trope uh, within white supremacy? Yeah, sure. I I feel like nowadays, if you don't uh, have at least a little bit of background on the Great Replacement, you can't really understand contemporary white supremacy. I mean, the, the theory itself comes from a French thinker. Um, but, but what it, what it's saying is that white people in their historic homelands, right? When I say historic homelands, the way they viewed, it, it's like the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, maybe South Africa, Russia, depending on how you frame it, hmm. that white people in those places are being displaced by populations that don't belong there and that meaning immigrant populations non-white populations in the united states it's often framed against latinx populations but in europe it's usually muslims people from the middle east and that those people and it is like most nefarious thing that, that there is a conspiracy often laid at the hands of jews right mm -hmm. to import those people into countries to displace white people reduce their power, and basically steal their homelands from them. And it's the ideology that motivated the Christchurch attacker, the Poway synagogue attacker, the Pittsburgh synagogue attacker, a couple events in Germany. I mean, I, I could go on, right? But right. that way of thinking that white people are being displaced and they need to take up arms to stop that displacement is the most common ideology that's shared among white supremacists today. And, and it's been the most deadly in recent years. It's strange because we were talking before about the characters within the white supremacist scene and sort of people do this work, putting themselves in the minds to to the degree that they can. There's something about that narrative that you can see would be very attractive to people who are looking to blame other people for their own, you know, suffering or, you know, issues that people have. I mean, everybody has issues in their lives. Not everybody necessarily blames, you know, immigrants and Jews, 
but it's a powerful narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways white supremacists are like the biggest victims in the world, right, in their own way of thinking. <laughs> it's as though, it, you know, you usually hear from the right, it's like, don't be a victim, but that's all this narrative about is about, right? It's not about what they have done themselves in their lives. It's about how these outside grand forces have pushed them into the whatever situation that they're in that they're not happy about, right? So their resentments, interestingly, are not either laid at the feet of government policies, right, or perhaps their own decisions. They're laid at the feet of this big grand mass conspiracy, and the only thing you can do, basically, is to kill people to stop this. That That's the thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and and you know, it's it's powerful, and and especially when it, you know, the conspiratorial nature of it really hooks a lot of people, and that's problematic. And it get, you know, it's an, it's an excuse for where whatever's happened in their lives. Can you talk a bit about like how you've seen things change in terms of you know quantifying and collecting and telling the story to broader audience of why they need to care through data? I mean, I would say that. The the role of data now in in examining this phenomenon, extremism in general, has been the biggest shift in the way I've done this work. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not no data scientist, so I'm not claiming that. But if you think back to, you know, 15 years ago, we would write, you know, basically journalistic pieces or profiles or whatnot exposing, you know, particular leaders of the movement, mm -hmm. particular ways of thinking and so on. But today that story is really told by data scientists who can harvest mass amounts of information at scale from the web, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning thousands of, for example, terrorist accounts on Telegram and tell you really, you know, there are 25,000 people talking about X terrible thing at this moment in time. Or th this is how many links are, you know, driving people off of, say, Twitter into more extreme content. That scale, that that large view of this movement wasn't really available to us in prior years. You know, we might be able to say, well, you know, 500,000 people have logged on to Stormfront, but that was about as sophisticated as we could get. Mm -hmm. This is completely different. And, <clears throat> you know, great s studies on this front can actually map whole networks. Who's talking to who, how, about what? What are the main websites that are driving information and traffic onto social media or vice versa? That, that wasn't possible before. And it allows all of us to actually see how big this movement is, mm. you know, in a way that we couldn't before. And I think that's important. And, and there's another thing here. The world of sort of allegiance to particular groups, which is the world that I started in at SPLC in 1999, that's not an appropriate way to really think about white supremacy anymore. It's an aspect of it, but it's really a decentralized movement of individuals, right? And they can connect themselves on the web in two seconds. This isn't about carrying a card, paying your dues and going to a meeting anymore, right? This is a totally different landscape, much of it virtual. And it's also a, a radicalizing tool that didn't exist even in the past, right? People can literally get sucked into these hate movements through online interactions in a way that wasn't possible. You know, sometimes I talk to people about how Hitler used the radio, right, to radicalize the Jewish population into anti-Semitism. The radio was still only a one-way technology. This is a two-way, multi-way, every way. Yeah. And so radicalization processes are, we've just never seen anything like it. You know, you said something that I think is just so critical. Most extremists 
are not affiliated with any group and that there is definitely an importance in identifying and tracking actual groups. But so much of this is movement based. And, and you were, you're so spot on when you say, you know, these online spaces make the the need to meet somebody at a bar, have a drink and convince them of your worldview not necessary. There's more not only access points on various platforms to this sort of hatred that, by the way, exist in the same space as our legitimate news, but just different ways to interact, right? You almost can choose how deep or not you want to get into a movement. And one of the questions that I think is hard since we were talking about data is how do we know when somebody is within that movement since so many of the people that we investigate, and I know you know this, Heidi, end up being 13-year-old kids who are just, you know, mm-hmm. posting or messing around. I think that's exactly right. And the, and the aspect of children getting sucked up into it is, is terrifying, right? And there's more and more of that that we've seen. I, I think that that's right. It's it, There aren't any hard boundaries anymore about this. As you described it, it's also true that people get into these movements at, at various different levels. And it, it's hard to separate out the, the kind of like hardcore from the more, I don't know what to say, like garden variety kind of hate. I mean, I'm not trying to make light of it, right. but there are levels of, of extremism. It's almost like they're and, experimenting, right? Like experimenting with yeah. hate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like hate light. I mean, these are bad terms, but you know, just kind of dipping your toes in the water. And, and, and on top of all that, even those people who are involved in, you know, the real computer scientists who look at this stuff, we have to remember, they've only been looking at it for a few years, right? This is like super new. So even them getting um, the sense of what to look at, and how to look at it. I mean, I literally had a conversation this morning with people at the University of Michigan, computer scientists, who were asking me that question, like, what should we be looking at? Because it's so new, right? It's, and it's a universe that they don't they don't usually deal with. Right. That I don't think we've gotten a handle on this. I think law enforcement's having a hell of a time, right? What 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 is the line between people you should be tr- truly concerned about and not be concerned about? Mm-hmm. How do you figure that out? I mean, this is... Uh, and it's so much more, right? It's so much more data. I mean, back in 2000, 2001, I could have almost told you that a membership list for the National Alliance is exactly where law enforcement should be looking and be concerned about. I couldn't, ma- you know, and that's like 1,500 people were on that list. Right. I couldn't make an assertion like that today. Is there a comparison to be made by how law enforcement is dealing with right-wing extremism in Europe versus how they're dealing with it here? And is that related to you know, laws that are just different in different parts of the world? I would say that both European and and the history of American law enforcement dealing with white supremacy has been to basically to have dropped the ball. That there was, you know, obviously 9-11 happened. It was horrific. Three, you know, more than 3,000 people dead. We woke up to a kind of extremism that we weren't paying attention to. That also applied to many European countries, right? Mm. And, and there was this shift that happened in 2001 where the, all the intelligence agencies, the, the equivalent federal law enforcement agencies, the MI5s, the MI6s, all shifted their work to Islamic extremism. That happened under in the United States under the Bush administration, also the Obama administration, right? It really was a bipartisan failure mm. to recognize the rise of white supremacy. And what's happened is under the sheer weight of the number of attacks lately in multiple countries, whether it's New Zealand, Germany, the UK, the United States, et cetera, 
they have kind of woken up all of a sudden to the fact that this threat is the one that's rising. Now, at this point, in the la- just in the last year, the FBI, DHS, and National Counterterrorism Center, State Department, all have said that white supremacist terrorism is the rising threat. The same kind of trend has happened in the last couple of years in Europe. MI5 took over this area of responsibility from, from um, Scotland Yard, for example, about 18 months ago. The Germans are on record saying that, the Swedes. It, everybody's come, the U.S. may be a little later to the game, but everybody's come to this realization a little late to the game. And what I think is interesting about that is this is an indigenous problem. And that's not to make light of Islamic extremism and the amount of violence and chaos it has created in our countries, but white supremacy is part of the fiber of our being, our history, both in Europe and the United States. It's not going to be so easy to tamp down or eradicate. And and that makes it a lot more serious. And because everybody was behind the eight ball, everybody's scrambling now about what it is to do. Like, you know, I fully expect new domestic terrorism agendas and laws to be coming in multiple places, including the United States, going forward as the realization is sunk in that this threat is growing and metastasizing. What motivates so many people to carry out these violent attacks starts with something completely protected. I think this is where it becomes tricky for law enforcement. It's like we want to make sure that we don't have law enforcement get all up in our business too much where they don't belong. And yet we know that clues to prevent, you know, communities from being victimized lie in the way that people are talking. So do you like how do you navigate that? Or is that part of civil society organizations like yours and and ADL and others to, to fill that role? I think that's a valid point, right? We don't need to have people's civil liberties um, infringed upon. And there's a bad history, right, with law enforcement in this country doing things like spying on Martin Luther King and John Lennon and other abuses, right? So this is a thing to have to have top of mind. But I also kind of think it's evading the responsibility to say, well, God, you know, the kind of sense of the First Amendment, how are we supposed to do this when, when a threat is rising? And, and the reason I say this is this. A lot of the content that, for example, ISIS and al-Qaeda were putting online was also technically protected in the United States. And, you know, you can talk about how great the caliphate is and other things, and it didn't violate Facebook's community standards at the time and whatnot. But there became a realization that this is a real threat to lives and liberty in places, mm. and something should be done about this. Now, the one big difference here is that is a foreign issue, right? It was largely a foreign issue. That doesn't mean there weren't Al-Qaeda operatives in the United States mm-hmm. or Islamic extremists you know, proliferating their ideas in the United States. But for the most part, it was foreign, and we applied a foreign terrorist you know, uh, organization, slapped it onto those groups, and it made it easier, for example, for the social media companies to deplatform them. But I don't think that we can just avoid confronting this difficult situation. If we're going to have more attacks like in Pittsburgh and El Paso, and let's not forget hate crimes, which are related mm. to all these ideas proliferating, and if more and more people are going to get radicalized into this thinking, we're going to have to confront that balance. Law enforcement has to be able to protect communities from hate violence and domestic terrorism. The social media companies need to step up and play their role and to stop proliferating this kind of stuff and allowing for recruitment, right? 
I mean, I hate to see the stuff on Telegram, but it's a lot worse when it's on Facebook or Twitter where more people can get sucked into it. Mm. These people are going to get crazier and more angry and more violent. So you can't kind of duck behind First Amendment concerns. What do you recommend sort of an average person think about or what steps can they take to feel like they have a role in pushing back against hate in this country? I, I think the best thing for people to do on that front is actually to work in, in their own communities. So um, what I mean by that is, you know, stand with, for example, hate crime victims in, in whatever place that you come from. Support legislation like hate crimes laws, for example, like all the people who work to get one passed. I know the ADL was key to this mm-hmm. in Georgia, right, to get the hate crimes law passed in Georgia. Work with... Um, organizations that support marginalized communities or deal with civil rights issues where you are. The, the harder core stuff that goes on with white supremacy is really a matter for like law enforcement. And, you know, these are scary people. You, you, if you can stand with the victims of hate in your community, or you can work to make your community welcoming, that's going to have a huge impact. You've been at this for a while. You know, things are getting in some ways more complicated uh, the work has never been more important, but it's been it's been a rough ride here for a while. And and how like how do you just personally deal with having to look at this and and deal with these issues every single day, but still you know maintain your 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 hope right your ability to wake up and do it again the next day. Well, there is alcohol, Oren. Although I would <laughs> I would suggest people go down that road. I guess the reason that I can, I, I, between the weird fascination that I have for extremism and I think a profound belief that, that white supremacy, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, like we have got to defeat these ideas and get rid of them to build a truly um, diverse democracy, right? Mm. And that's the promise that everybody should have. And these people are the ones standing in the way of that. They, they are harming people. It's not just only about people who die in domestic terrorism incidents who are murdered or victims of hate crimes. It's all kinds of levels of discrimination. And though, you know, those people didn't do anything to deserve this, right? It's a legacy of our history, their heinous ideas. They have been incredibly powerful and destructive in places like Nazi Germany, you know, just for one. And I just feel like people got to stop it, right? We got to stop it. It's of critical importance. This is what drives genocide. You know, that's that's an incredibly scary thing. And I so guess it sounds, that's it sounds what, to me, Heidi, like you're just saying you got to just keep going at it. It seems like you're focused on the bigger issue, which is just how important this still remains. Yeah, we have got to stop it. These are potent, powerful, and dangerous ideas. They have brought nothing but tragedy in their wake for centuries, right? I mean, look at the South, the history in the South, slavery, civil rights abuses, genocide in in Germany, genocide in Myanmar just recently, right, with Facebook's mm-hmm. role there. This, this is, you know, I, I forget what the UN calls genocide, like the crime of crimes, right? This is serious stuff. And we, as, um, you know, believers in diverse democracies and, and fairness and civil liberties, we've got to defeat these ideas. We have to. I, I, I don't think I just I feel like compelled. Somebody's got to do something. We have to fight against this. 
I hope you find some time to rest as well. It's a, it's important. <laughs> but uh, where can people go to learn more about uh, the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism? Sure. So our website is um, globalextremism.org, and we have a Twitter account um, that is the same. You can go to either one to see the reports we've started putting out. So please have a look-see, and we'll be putting updates about our plans for the future in both those places. And there are email accounts on there if you have any ideas or people want to send something along. We'd love to hear it. I really, really appreciate you making the time to come on this, tell people a little bit about what you're up to. I remain you know, inspired by, by your uh, indefatigable um, efforts to stop hate and extremism. So thank you so much, Heidi. Well, Oren, those kind comments go right back at you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I love, I love New York. No, Only in New York can you have that conversation out your window, right? <laughs> ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The Center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies, to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.